Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, listeners. This is episode number 853. And I just wanted to say a couple of things pre-jingle here. First of all, it was very nice to read comments in response to the previous episode of this podcast, which was all about how it feels to be blind and how we talk about disability in English. It was very nice to read lots and lots of comments from people, including comments from other blind people or partially sighted people who wrote about their experiences in the comments section, which was really cool. It was really good to get those responses, and I'm glad that people enjoyed the episode. It was really uh, sort of an interesting one for me to make as well to uh, explore that particular subject on the podcast. Now, premium subscribers, have you noticed I published the first three parts of a new premium series? That's P54, which is called Being a Good Listener. I've published the first three parts of that series. So if you are a premium subscriber, you should see them in your episode list. P54, parts one, two, and three. The series is called How to Be a Good Listener. Basically, what I do in this premium series is, first of all, go through an article which is all about how to be an interesting person and how that relates to being a good listener and being a good communicator. Okay. Now, Normally, in premium episodes, I focus on teaching vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation, right? The sort of systems of English. But being good at English is more than just using the right word at the right time, in the right form, clearly pronounced. It's more than the mechanics of it. There's also a lot of other stuff, a lot of psychology and a lot of mindset and stuff that goes into what makes you a good communicator, right? Communicative competence. And it relates to your attitude and it relates to things like self-awareness and body language and all sorts of other things as well. And that's what I'm delving into in P54. A lot of psychology, self-awareness, emotional intelligence and other considerations that we really should think about when becoming a good communicator. In this case, the focus being on being a good listener. What makes you one of those people that other people feel comfortable around, that other people feel that they want to talk to, and that you are easy to talk to? Okay, how can you be one of those people? What are the important foundations to have in place to be a good communicator? This is the sort of stuff I'm exploring in premium series 54. There is vocabulary as well. And I go through lots of nice bits of vocab that come out of the article that we read. There's pronunciation practice as well, using your voice with stress, rhythm, intonation, and the rest of it. So that's all in premium series 54 and premium subscribers. You can see those episodes there in your list. If you're not a premium subscriber and you want to get those episodes, it's very simple. You just sign up, you add the episodes to your favorite podcast app, and then you can listen to them. There are PDF links. So there are PDFs with every episode and also video versions too. To get all that stuff, just go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium. Okay. All right, that's enough from this preamble. 
Let's get into the episode properly. And here is the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, listeners. Welcome to this new episode. How are you doing? I hope you're doing fine. I've literally just come into my pod room and just sat down. Haven't even had time to make myself a cup of tea just because... It's just one of those mornings where I've been rushing around doing this and that. Uh, and so time is time is in short supply this morning. So anyway, I've just sat down and now I'm going to record a quick introduction to the episode that you're going to listen to. So this is going to be one of those episodes where I chat to someone I've never actually met before. And I'm actually recording this introduction before the conversation. So I'm about to speak to my guest in just a few minutes, actually. That's why I'm in a bit of a rush. I want to record this introduction before the conversation. I just want to do it. Usually, I record the conversation and then record the introduction afterwards, but not this time. I just decided I wanted to do it in kind of chronological order this time. So in a moment, I'm going to talk to Rhiannon Carter, who is an English teacher from the UK. Uh, she was a guest on Zdenex podcast, actually, uh, and he recommended her as a guest. So he recommended that I could talk to her. So let's meet Rhiannon. I, I'm I'm pretty much going to just go with the flow uh, on this one. I've decided that the idea for this episode is that you can just listen to me getting to know someone and letting the conversation take its course. Okay. So rather than sort of choosing the topic in advance and trying to be a bit prescriptive about exactly what we have to talk about, I've decided to let this one just sort of happen naturally. Um, and the fact that I don't know Rhiannon, we haven't met before, obviously the aim, I suppose, of the conversation, um, if conversations do have aims, I suppose conversations, depends on the conversation, doesn't it? Some conversations have a specific purpose, but uh, often, you know, when we just meet someone and get to know them, the conversation can kind of go anywhere. So I suppose really the the purpose or aim of this conversation that you're going to listen to is, um, you know, it's a getting to know someone conversation. Okay. Um, so rather than you having to keep up with a conversation between two people who know each other really well already and have a lot of shared context and background together. Like, for example, if I have my brother on the podcast or one of my friends, this time you will be getting to know my guest pretty much at the same time as me. Now, I do know some things about her. She's an English teacher. She's from the UK somewhere. Uh, she has some opinions about how English should and shouldn't be taught. She focuses quite a lot of attention on having the right mindset when learning English. And uh, she likes DIY, that's do-it-yourself. That means like making shelves and building things in your own home. She likes DIY. And that's pretty much it, actually. Okay, so join me now as I get to know Rhiannon. Uh, or is it Rhiannon? I'm not sure. We'll find out. And we'll see where the conversation takes us. Okay, so let's go. We're going. We've started. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Hello. Uh, Rhiannon. Rhiannon or Rhiannon? What's the right way to say your name? It depends. If you are my mother and angry, then it's mm. Rhiannon. But if you're if you're just neutral, then it's Rhiannon. Oh, your mother says Rhiannon. Rhiannon like with a stress. Oh, on that. Rian, she's Rian. Welsh. She's very Welsh. Yes, she's very Welsh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's been living in England for like forty years, and she's still the Welshest person you'll ever meet. <laughs> 
<laughs> really? Yeah. Which part of Wales does she come from? She comes from Merthyr Tydfil. Do you know anything about it? I don't, except that I know it's very Welsh. It's very Welsh. Anyone who does know anything about it always reacts with, oh. Really? Mm. What, is it in North Wales? No, it's in the valleys. Okay. And it doesn't have the best reputation. <laughs> it's just, ah. it's better now, but it used to be like lots of drugs, lots of violence, not many jobs. Um, and that's where my mum comes from. <laughs> so yet another sort of fairly poverty stricken hard sort of town in England or in England <gasps> in England and Wales exactly <laughs> in the UK yeah there's we have a few of those we places do. like that we do yeah okay uh, all right so you're are you, are you I mean you know you're English though right you were born in England I were was, you I was born in England yeah my dad's English um I was mm-hmm. it's funny that you bring this up so soon because I was watching the rugby on the weekend because it's the World Cup yeah. and I was watching Wales and Wales got kicked out and I was watching yeah. Ireland and Ireland got kicked out and I was watching yeah. England and England got kicked out. Uh, did England get kicked no, out? No, oh, England, no England, England survived. Oh no, but I was supporting we... the other team. That was, <laughs> that was what happened. I was disappointed with the results. I remember that much. Yeah, France got kicked out, but England survived, it. much to everyone's disappointment, apparently. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah my, my partner is Scottish, and we were watching it, and we were just watching the England match, and there's just something... I've come around to England football teams, but the England rugby team, I just they just fill me with, like, a rage that, that <laughs> I, was, I was raised in. I was raised to feel this way. My mum has brought me up to hate the English rugby team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and my partner feels the same from a Scottish perspective. And we were just saying like, gosh, how unfortunate for English people to not have another identity to go with. Because I have a very English accent. People think I'm English. I'm fine with being English. I, I would probably say British. Um, but I can kind of hide behind Welsh and I can hide behind having lived in Scotland my whole adult life. And my partner can obviously, she's not English at all. Mm. So she can hide behind Scottish. And we were like, how unfortunate <laughs> for, for these English supporters in the crowd. How unfortunate that they have to support England, that they have no other options. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, we can't like... Uh... Yeah, we can't hide anywhere else or go into it. You know, can't be like, yeah, actually, I'm yeah. from. I think you know, my granddad so. is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that's right. So, what is it about the Eng- when you see the England rugby team doing what they do? What is it that fills you with so much uh, contempt? Can I say contempt? contempt? Oh, contempt! Yeah, perfect word. Um, it's the white. Why are they wearing a white strip for a game in which you get down on the ground and in the mud? To me, it just mm. seems arrogant. And, I've <laughs> and I was speaking to someone about it a, a couple of weeks ago, watching another match, and they were like, oh, no, I think it just looks so pristine. I think it looks really nice. I think it kind of, you know, pops on the field. And I was like, well, that's a stupid opinion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. It's kind of funny. They look, they all go out and they're all sort of proud with their chests all puffed up in yeah. their lovely, clean, white clothes. And then they just roll around on the floor and get covered in mud so yeah, yeah what was the thinking who designed that they should but why doesn't why is there no rugby team with a brown strip <laughs> maybe like, just blurring in like blending in completely to the field yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah i suppose camouflage on a rugby field is not an advantage then i suppose perhaps that not. must be the answer perhaps not yeah yeah okay <laughs> Uh, um, so you said you you've lived in so wait your mum's uh well your dad's english correct. but you said you've lived in scotland for most of your adult life most of your life that's correct yeah is that where you are now are you in scotland now i'm in edinburgh i'm joining you from edinburgh 
Very nice. Okay, how's Edinburgh this morning? It is so grey. <laughs> Before uh, getting on this call, I was trying to set up the light and there is no light. I have every single light in my kitchen on at the moment and it is still really grey and dark because it is a very overcast day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, is that typical then? Is that typical weather? Yeah. <laughs> it was really bright yesterday. If we'd had this call yesterday, I would be bathed in sunlight right now. Um, but no, it's pretty typical for this time of year to be very grey. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. So uh, what brought you to Scotland then? I mean, were you, were you raised in England or, mm. or raised in... Yeah? I was raised in England. I grew up in a town, a city called Exeter in the southwest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then at 18, I came to the University of Edinburgh. And so uh, I was here for four years and then I did go to Spain for two years where I started teaching English. But when I came back to the UK, this was the city that I came back to. Um, and I've been here ever since. I see. Okay. So university in Edinburgh, mm. what did you do? I studied theology. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. Theology. Theology, like the one about God. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do you define theology? Uh, the study of, I mean, the study of God, if you take it from its kind of Greek theosology, um, within a British context, uh, and I guess a, as well a North American context, theology without any sp- specifics, you know, any nuances, is Christian theology. Um, and so a lot of it's looking at the sort of internal logic of that religion and that belief system, which as a non-Christian was quite fun. It was... Did you say logic? Sorry? Yeah, the sort of... Like, you know, you have to obviously presume a certain amount of things. You have to go in and Mm -hmm. presume that God exists, which I didn't believe. But but I didn't mind putting that hat on. It was just like a philosophy exercise. Um, Mm. So you have to presume that God exists, although you don't have to presume in what way. That Obviously, there's lots of disagreement within within Christian Christianity and Christian theologians. Um, and then you sort of work out, okay, well, for example, like Christology would be the study of, of Christ. And it's like, okay, well, in what way, if we're claiming that Christ is both God and the son of God, how does that work? And theologians over the last 2000 years have kind of come up with like almost mathematical formulas, but with words of sort of, well, he's, he's like this. And and if you say that he's not, then actually you've committed this heresy. And if you say this, then you've committed that heresy and we have to toe this line. It's really interesting. Um, But much for me, at least it was much more of just a thought exercise um, for four years that I really enjoyed um, rather than any kind of getting to a truth, which some of the people on my course were trying to do. Really? Some, some people were, religious uh some people were were, were uh believers mm. uh searching for a deeper sense of yeah uh, of of what god was and they came out of the four years with a, a a better idea of that did they did they feel closer to god sort of thing at the end um i think it sort of depended on the type of belief that they had there were a mm. good number of people on our program who were from more of an evangelical bent um mm-hmm. And those people, generally speaking, were quite challenged throughout the course because a lot of our um, lecturers and professors did have a personal belief, but they were academics at heart. Like they were challenging things. They were really rigorous. Um, And that doesn't necessarily match with an evangelical approach. 
um, it certainly wasn't coming at it from a religious perspective. It was coming at it from an academic perspective. And then there were people like me who went in atheist, had a little dabble where I was like, wait a minute, this is quite interesting. So there was about an 18 month period where I went to church sort of semi-regularly here in the city and then sort of lost it afterwards. I was like, oh, that was fun. But (laughs) it turns out it wasn't actually real (laughs) for me. Anyway, that experience wasn't real for me. Yeah. Okay. So what, what would a degree in a four-year degree, a bachelor's degree? Uh, it was an MA, but the Scottish one, so an undergraduate, undergraduate master's. Okay. What would that lead you to do then? How, what, what, was your, what was your decision-making process? Um, you know, why did you choose to do theology at, at, at MA level? Yeah, I think um, I saw it a, completely on a line with a degree like history, philosophy, English literature, the sort of degree where, and I think this is a difference that the UK has versus perhaps a lot of European countries that I'm familiar with, where a degree is kind of proof that you've been thinking to a certain level and therefore is kind of I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm not expressing it right, but no, I know. But you can you can kind of do anything. So, like, if I think about like my core friendship group from that degree course, we've got two lawyers, we've got a consultant, we've got someone who went back to train as a nurse, we've got someone who is a specialist in like wine. Um, so she does something with wine. Um, yeah, drinks <laughs> uh, it. It drinks it copiously by the looks of things. Yeah. Um, we've got teachers. We've got uh, someone who works for the civil service. Like it's just a degree that then sort of gets you into other stuff. I do have a couple of friends who are in ministry, um, so they took it that in that direction. And now in ministry, in ministry. So a really good friend of mine is a minister in the Church of Scotland, um, and has his little parish <laughs> up north, <laughs> and lives this like weird little kind of ITV Sunday drama existence of like bake sales and internal, you know, factions between the old lady who doesn't want this to happen and the old lady who does want this to happen. It's really fun. Uh, and lots of tea and cake. So but... much tea and cake. Amazing. Yeah. And does he have a, uh, does he, he, she, he. does uh, he, does he have a bicycle? He doesn't, but that's because he lives so close to the church. It's like opposite <laughs> the church. It's just so cute. The whole thing is very, very picturesque. Right. So, so I guess, yeah, what you were saying there is that um, you decided that, yeah, a degree in theology is a, is a degree, you know, and it means that you've gone through like four years of academia mm-hmm. and emerged on the other side and you sort of, um, yeah, had that rigorous academic experience, which is, first of all, sort of nourishing just intellectually and as a person, yeah. but also for potential employers, it means that you've got a certain level of like... Um, you know, uh, determination and you you can, uh, complete different, you can work, you could do research, you can read, you can write, you know, you can uh, finish something to completion, you know, uh, you know, you go, you've been through an academic process and sort of to an extent, it doesn't matter exactly what the subject was. It's more the, the act of doing it and the process of doing it that, Mm -hmm. that counts. Yeah. Okay. What did you actually do then after, so you left, you went to university at, was it 18? Mm Mm-hmm. You left at 22. Check out the maths. Woo. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, what did you do then when you were 22 and you left university? Did you did you decide, right, I know exactly what I'm going to do and now I'm going to do it? Oh, what happened? my gosh. No, not at all. Um, I 
in retrospect, it looks like I had a plan because I started teaching English and lo and behold, 10 years mm. later, here I am still within that field. Um, yeah. But at the time it was a, I don't know what I want to do. Maybe I'll go and get my CELTA, <laughs> spend some time in Spain. I'd, I'd studied Spanish in school and I really wanted to keep that up. Um, and so I ran off to Spain and I... Was that an, was that an immediate thing? Because you, you got your degree results in like August of that year. Yeah, the July. And how long did it take you to, to sort of get yourself off to Spain? So the previous summer, so the summer before my final year, I had worked in a, a summer school in Belgium and I went back after I graduated to do that again. So it was about seven or eight weeks in a boarding school in the middle of the Ardennes forest. Um, blissful in many ways, absolutely terrible from an English teaching perspective. <laughs> the standard okay. was so low. Um, <laughs> Wait, so, all right, this is, this is, this is your summer job uh, near, the, near the end of your degree. Yes. And you spent the summer at this school, this boarding school in the Ardennes, in the Ardennes Forest in Belgium. Yes. Working as an English teacher with, with uh, young learners? Yeah, teenagers. Teenagers. Mm. And so the blissful part, was the what Arden. the environment, the Ardennes <laughs> forest? Yeah, exactly. And some of the what? some of my colleagues, and we went out for walks. Like the nearest, um, none of us had a car. One or two of us had a car, so it was walking everywhere. And there was this like path through the forest that would take you to like the nearest town with a shop, which was an, about a fifty minute walk away. So you know, if you wanted yeah. a pizza or you wanted to go and get a beer, we would have to all walk to this little town. And it was gorgeous and there were sunsets and it was lovely. And I remember one day a friend of our friend of mine who was working there as well, um, we woke up at six o'clock in the morning. It was a Sunday and we met on the fire escape and we went out for this walk that lasted like six hours and we saw red squirrels and it was just really, really beautiful. So that mm. side of things was absolutely blissful. The teaching itself was, you know, standard <laughs> standard summer school fair. <laughs> Can you give me a flavour of what what you said it was not good, right? Um, uh, what was it that was not good about it? Can you give me an example? Um, I mean, none of us were trained. So the the advert, the job advert, explicitly looked for people who were studying at university, people with no teaching experience. Um, mm. the only mm. people with teaching experience were people who had taught there the previous summer, for example, right. they right. had their own, um, methodology, which was like split into like five minute sections. So in your hour class, the first five minutes you like revise, I can't even remember. I did this for three summers and it never stuck cause it never made any sense. Um, mm. but like, you know, the first five minutes you have to do this and then the next five minutes you have to do that. And then maybe there would be like a 15 minute section in the middle where you kind of got into something and it, there were lots of, um, I wonder, I'd be interested to know sort of how it grew out. Like, I think there was an influence with like the audio lingual method. Um, yeah. But that was sort of at their adult school. We had a sort of watered down version of what was already probably slightly problematic. <laughs> and, yeah. and it just, oh God, it was terrible. It was so bad. I, I imagine the five minute thing as well is the logic there is, well, they're teenagers. So you can't, that you've got to move on to something different every five minutes. Otherwise they will just explode or something. I think so. I think that was the risk. Yeah. Actual teenage explosion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
okay. All right. So you'd had some experience of teaching at yeah. summer schools. So then at, at the end of university, yeah, uh, you finished, you got your result. Mm -hmm. uh, what did you get? 2-1? Two, one. Got 2-1. Two, First? One. Got 2-1. Two, two, one. One. Yeah. Decent. Yeah. I was a bit disappointed. Solid. I was a bit disappointed. My, um, my dissertation had two markers and I got a 58 and a 78. The two markers. Wait a minute, what? Yeah. Oh, two markers, two people marking two people your, your, your dissertation. Yeah. And one of them gave me a 58, which is a 2-2. Two -two. Not, I mean, it's not terrible, but it's not what I was hoping for. And the yeah. other person gave me a 78, which is very firmly into the range of a first. Wow. Right? And I, totally different. Yes. And I, to this day, I like, I don't know how they made that decision, but I got the average of a 68 and that was the same as I got overall, which was fine, that, but a bit disappointing. So two points below a first, isn't it? Yeah. 70, above 70 is the territory of a first, I, right. I understand. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Oh, uh, did that sting? Did that hurt then? It did sting, especially because a lot of my friends got firsts and I was like, no. oh, I'm the stupid one. <laughs> ah, it's good. It's character building. Character, character building, building stuff. Sure. Um, okay. So after the devastation of, of not getting a first. The heartbreak. Yeah. The heartbreak. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So you, you immediately thought, right, Spain, I'm going to just escape to Spain. Yeah. What was it you were thinking? Sunshine? Is that, was that what you were looking for after four years in Edinburgh? You're like, I think it's time. I think it's time. Let's see if I can, D. if I can generate a tan from the skin. After two <laughs> years, I could not. <laughs> <laughs> really? I was, I was not made for the Spanish sunshine. It turned out that Edinburgh was where I was supposed to be after all, but it took me two years to work that out. Um, uh, but no, I went to Seville and I just wanted to live in Spain and eat tapas and speak a bit of Spanish and teach some English. And I think I ticked those boxes. I did that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And you learned the Spanish language. You mastered it. Yeah. I, no, <laughs> <laughs> I've never been, um, I've never been a perfectionist. I've always, mm -hmm. I've never, well, or perhaps if I have had the, the kind of little perfectionist sort of you know, like a, a little bit of that. I've never had the follow through. <laughs> so I've, mm -hmm. I've had to learn to like, let go of any perfectionist tendencies. Um, and so I, th I think to sort of master a language to like get really, really accurate at it, you really mm. have to care. And I've never <laughs> cared. <laughs> I'm just like, look, you understand me. I understand you. I had a, um, a girlfriend for a while who was Spanish and she was quite, I mean, our communication was absolutely fine, but she was quite rude about my Spanish. She would correct me. She would kind of say like, oh, you still sound like this. You still, she was lovely. We didn't last. Um, but the, I just, I couldn't generate caring. I was like, did you understand what I said? Right. Well then let's move on. I couldn't, I couldn't care that I used the wrong form of the verb or the wrong preposition. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, the, the drive, the motivation that's required to really push a language all the way through, mm. all the way through to the, to the high level of fluency and accuracy. Mm. Yeah, 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 it requires a lot of uh, motivation and, and, uh, and, and push and, and so on. Mm. Yeah, okay. So, all right, after Spain, came back, back to Edinburgh. Like, right, I want it to be colder, please, and <laughs> less sunshine. Uh, I want, I want uh, larger portions of food, not just like little portions on small plates. Absolutely. I want one big plate. And if it could be deep all... fried, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, really? Deep fried. Yeah, of course, because in Scotland, yeah, deep fried food. Is that real? Deep fried yeah. food, like deep fried Mars bars? Yeah, it's delicious. 
Yeah. It's real. It's, it's yeah. amazing. I mean, I wouldn't eat a whole one, but I've shared it with like two or three people. And that's absolutely amazing. It's from a town in, called Stonehaven, which is where my girlfriend's from. So mm-hmm. yeah, deep fried Mars bar, okay. delicious. So how often would you have a deep fried Mars bar? Or how often does the average like uh, Scottish person eat it? Stonehavian, <laughs> if that's the word, uh, how often does a resident of Stonehaven eat a deep fried Mars bar? Because I mean, you know, Probably like I once don't every wanna... five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not like a it's not like a daily thing or anything. Because no. that's the thing that that uh, if people learn that the deep fried Mars bar is real mm. and that they can be they're bought and sold in certain parts of the country that people will then assume that it's like a sort of daily thing. Yeah, and I wouldn't want to spread misinformation about. Uh, you know, deep fried Mars bars and and spread uh, stereotypes. Mm. So it's more of a like a yeah once in once every five years. Yeah, you get really probably... drunk and you're like, I really want a deep fried Mars bar, and <laughs> that's how it works. But I think even though the individual Scots or tourists are probably not doing these things very often, you go into any chippy, like any fish and chip shop, and you've got your kind of battered haddock or your battered ho- uh, cod. You've got. I'm just gonna. Adjust, because I can't hear myself speak. There we go. Adjust That's so much away. easier. Adjust away. Go for it. Um, yeah. So you've got your battered ca- cod. You've got your battered haddock. You've maybe got like a, a fried sausage, which is quite common in England as well. Like, you know, your jumbo yeah. sausage, deep fried. Mm. But then you'll also get a deep fried slice of pizza or you'll get a deep fried burger or you get a, and, and it's all lined up behind the glass when you walk in. And it is like, I mean, they do commit to it. And I, pr- I presume they wouldn't commit to that if people weren't buying it, right? So yeah. presumably people do go in and have a deep fry or like a lawn sausage, which is the sausage meat, but in a square. Oh yeah. Have you come and across that? And that's deep fried. That's no, deep. I haven't seen that. It doesn't have to be deep fried. It has to be fried, but it doesn't have to be deep fried. <laughs> right. Um, but it can be battered and deep fried as well. I-, I wonder if my listeners are understanding, well, A, anything we're saying, and B, <laughs> this stuff about deep fried Mars bars. So deep fried listeners, I guess, you know what, a lot of people are listening to this going, yeah, we've got it, Luke. Yeah. Move on, move on. Yeah, (laughs) maybe, but I'm like, no, no, this is the thing I'm going to explain. This is an English podcast. We've got some vocabulary. We must understand it. (laughs) This specific thing is what we have to explain. So um, deep fried. So yeah, this is how fish and chips is is made. Mm -hmm. Certainly the fish. Uh, So if we just quickly explain fish and chips, you get a piece of fish, uh, cod normally, Mm -hmm. or haddock. It's Mm -hmm. kind of white fish, uh, a big fillet of fish. And it's covered in batter, which is made from flour. And is it eggs? I think it's just water, maybe. Flour and water? Um, Flour and water. I think sometimes okay. beer. And beer, you can yes. Have beer batter. Mm, it's best when there's some beer in there. Mm. Um, and uh, so the, the, this fillet of fish is, is rolled and covered in this batter. It's a bit like tempura, right? For those people who, who know what that is too. I don't, I'm not going to now explain tempura. I'll, <laughs> so I'll leave tempura that to, is. <laughs> I'll leave that to the Japanese podcasts. But anyway, so the fish has been covered in this batter and then it's deep fried. So it's put into a large, deep, uh, hot container full of boiling oil uh, and until that batter is all crunchy and crusty and full of probably a lot of what saturated fats and stuff i yeah, don't, I don't know stuff. what 
Yeah. <laughs> and it comes out and it's all golden. It's all crunchy. Oh, and then on the inside, there's like lovely cooked, a cooked fillet of fish mm. on the inside. And it's juicy and delicious and just wonderful. And you, you, just in case that wasn't unhealthy enough, you have to eat it with a huge portion of large chunky chips yeah. um, with salt on them. And those chips have been deep fried as well. They have. Uh, um, and yeah, salt and probably some, some vinegar, mm. malt vinegar, uh, to give that a little extra tang. Mm. And some and some ketchup or other sources are yeah. available. I'm, yeah. I'm unable to tell from your tone, Luke. Are you judging this? <laughs> no, I'm not. no, I'm not because I love it. But I'm, what I suppose what I'm doing is in describing it in, with that slightly ironic tone, mm. I'm trying to incorporate the... Uh, the 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 other perspectives on this because mm. some people will be listening to that horrified at the they idea will. and think it's unhealthy and disgusting and it just it'll con- yeah it is well it's not disgusting but oh well, it depends that's a that, you know it depends on your point of view but you know a lot of people out there it'll just confirm what they think about in- you know English food or British food being terrible and all that stuff mm. and um, you know I'm, uh, that sort of bores me a little bit that that attitude but yeah I, I, I'm not judging it but I am trying to explain. Uh, the concept of fish and chips, um, um, you know, un- with the understanding that some people uh, probably think it's not good. Uh, so, you know, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, in, you know, yeah. incorporating all things, every... All things in moderation, right? Yeah. Fish and chips are yeah. my, my birthday meal, especially if my birthday falls midweek where we're not necessarily going to do anything to celebrate kind of majorly. My partner and I will walk down to New Haven, which is a little part of Edinburgh to the north, right on the coast. And there's this amazing fish and chip shop. And every time we've been, the queue is like at least 40, 50 minutes. And you just stand outside and the sun's going down over the water and you've got your little seagulls, but they're not too aggressive here. They're just kind of making a nice little background noise. And you've got your boats and maybe the tide is in and they're all rocking. Maybe the tide is out and they're all sat on the mud. And it's just really nice. It's lovely. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, we don't eat fish and chips all the time. But, you know, you could do it once a week. But even that seems to be quite a lot. Mm. So every now and then, it may yeah. be on a Friday exactly. after work, you're just like, let's have fish and chips. And you go and get a takeaway, bring it home all wrapped in paper and open it out, sit in front of the TV. Yum, yum, yum. Bliss. Brilliant. Yeah, amazing. Um, okay, so then you what? At some point, you thought, right, uh, this is it. I'm going to be an English teacher. Did you, or or, or what? Like, yeah. What so happened? I had um, when I was in Spain, the question was still looming over me. Like, what am I going to do with my life? I really enjoyed teaching English, but I was a little bit unlucky. My job was fine, um, but the language school that I had just happened to find a job in, and I wasn't applying for a September start where I might have had a few more options. I was applying in November. Lots of positions were already full. The school I went to was, as I say, it was fine. The teaching was fine. Um, This is where, sorry? In Seville. This this is in Seville in Spain. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. And, but it didn't have either a culture or individuals within that culture who were particularly excited about it. Um, There were two older people who had been teaching for, you know, 30 years. But even they sort of seemed a little bit kind of, maybe a bit sort of done with it. They're like, I'm just going to do the same thing I did last year. I'm going to do the same thing I did last year. And then of the sort of younger people in maybe 20s and 30s, one was there because their partner was Spanish and they were like, well, I need a a way to work and live in Spain. Um, Another 
I think actually had exactly the same story. It was two with with Spanish partners. The other one has actually gone on, I think, like me, to kind of get a lot more excited about it later. But at that time was sort of, I'm just living in Spain and I'm in my 20s and I'm having a good time. And I never really got a sense for like what English teaching could be as a as a career, as as people who actually, you know, want to learn about it and get good at it. Um, but then the summer before I decided to move back to the UK for good, I worked in a language school in Exeter. So I was back living with my parents and working at a language school there. And they were really fussy. They had really strict kind of criteria it was, you were supposed to be 25. I was 24, (laughs) but you were supposed to be the youngest teachers were 25. Cause I I think their assumption there was that we're not getting the kind of the gap year type teachers, people who have a couple of years experience underneath them. About 70% had either, either a Delta or a master's in TESOL, or at least like a PGCE or some kind of other teacher training certificate to a pretty high level. Um, and the DOS was doing her master's in um, in TESOL at the time and was really interested in like um, staff room dynamics and how to bring the best out of your staff through the staff room. And I DOS for everyone, by the oh, way, yeah, DOS, that's director of studies. Mm-hmm. It's like the sort of teaching manager. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I just, I was surrounded by people who were really taking it seriously and I, for example, hadn't really had much experience at that point teaching pronunciation. The IPA chart, for example, was like, oh my God, what is that? Um, And my assistant DOS, the ADOS, took me aside and was like, why don't we work on this this summer? Like, I'll come and do some co-teaching with you. So he came into my classroom and he led some classes and then sort of let me lead some classes, but he was still there. He like gave me some tips on, on how to teach. And like, it was just such a different environment of, of professionals. I suddenly, for the first time, even though I'd been teaching for almost three years at that point, that was the first experience I had where I saw English language teaching as a professional job. And that kind of sparked something. And then a mm-hmm. few years later, I, I did my Delta um, because I was like, yeah, no, I'm, I'm committed to this. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How was it doing the Delta uh, compared to the CELTA? So again, listeners... So, and some people will know, I've mm-hmm. talked about it before, CELTA, sort of the entry level proper qualification that you take to become an English teacher, certificate in English language teaching to adults. Mm-hmm. Other certificates are available, but CELTA is like, you know, the sort of, as I said, the generally considered to be the sort of uh, um, uh, respected one, I suppose. Yeah. 
Um, there's Trinity as well that yeah, offers Cert, a similar. Yeah, 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 but Celta is a Cambridge one, and then um, and then after that, when you're really serious about teaching, and if you're not just on your gap year, as mm-hmm. you said, and you want to do this properly and seriously, you do the Delta, which is the diploma, or in fact, higher diploma in English language teaching to adults, mm-hmm. and uh, it's much more challenging. Much more challenging. So, yeah, I mean, uh, I found them both pretty hard. Because mm. I did CELTA with zero experience mm-hmm. of teaching. I think that and makes a I big did, difference. I did DELTA about, uh, was it five years later, mm. uh, which is like a, just a whole other big step up. Yeah. Um, but so how was it for you? Which, did you find DELTA to be harder than CELTA? Yeah, I did. Because I'd already, by the time I did my CELTA, I already had two summers at a summer camp under my belt. And even though I didn't have that much I didn't have the knowledge that necessarily that they were testing me on or like the lesson planning, which is a big part of the CELTA. I did have experience in a classroom, so that didn't scare me. Kind of standing up in front of people, sort of generally structuring a lesson, delivering instructions, that's, that sort of thing didn't really phase me. There were still things to learn, but I wasn't starting from zero. Um, so I didn't really, I found the CELTA very intense. It's four weeks you know, you are doing a lot of work, like every night when you've left the, the school that you're practicing in, you know, you're going home, you're writing assignments, you're, you're doing all of that. I found it intense, um, but I didn't find it particularly hard. I did very well in it. Um, mm. That was sort of easy. The Delta was much, much harder, but the Delta also was, it was much more academic. It wasn't as academic as perhaps if I'd done a master's in TESOL or something like that, but you were still expected to read, you know, the odd journal article and the odd, you know, kind of, there were books involved, whereas the CELTA kind of hadn't really had that. It was sort of just input from the tutors. Yeah, because you have to do, uh, as well as preparing uh, lessons, which you get sort of uh, observed teaching and then graded and stuff, uh, you have to do these academic assignments uh, mm. about the language point that you're going to be teaching. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, if you've chosen to do a lesson about grammar uh, and you're, you're teaching sort of conditional structures to a group of intermediate students, you've got to... Um, write an, an entire essay about the grammar of conditionals and about uh, all the p- possible problems that students can have with it and like go into quite a lot of depth mm-hmm. it, sort of into the linguistics of it um, and then you've got to write a lesson plan a very 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 detailed lesson plan which is all completely every almost every second of the lesson has to be justified mm-hmm. and explained in terms of the interactions and the your reasons for choosing that and the materials you're yeah. using and what you know all that stuff and uh, then you have to actually teach the lesson and you know it's horrible because there's <laughs> someone staring at you tapping away on a laptop while you're there sort of sweating in front of the students desperately trying to make this lesson plan that you spent weeks or a week writing yeah. to actually make it work in a classroom with some humans. Um, and as well as that, you've got to do all your other assignments about different teaching methodologies. And then there's an extended assignment where you da 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 It's like, oh my goodness, it's um, really, really tough. Um, yeah, so it's, that's pretty hard work. Yeah. yeah. Did you do um, yours like over a three-month period or like while working part-time? I worked I worked part time mm. and did it at the same time. So I can't remember how long mine was. 
But it, it, I started in the dead of winter. I remember this. It's sort of <laughs> the legend of my Delta. It's in my. I did it a long time ago. So I did mine in 2006. Mm. Um, and so it's sort of in my memory. I don't really, you know, I, me- I just remember it in, with, with things like the weather at the time yeah. and sort of what the last day was like and stuff. I just remember the, ver- the very beginning, it was the dead of winter. I remember <laughs> leaving the very first session and it was dark and cold. And I kind of came home with my coat yeah. and a bag full of stuff. Questioning your life decisions. Just like, oh my God, what am I doing? (laughs) You know, um, but I'd I'd put it off for a while. Some of my friends had done the Delta and they'd reported back about how horrible and difficult Mm. it was and they'd scared me. And I'd be like, no, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And then, you know, eventually I decided I'd do it. So I had sort of mentally prepared myself and and cleared a lot of space in my life, Mm. you know. And I was in a band at the time and I'd actually, I I left the band. I mean, it was time to leave the band anyway. It wasn't working. But, you know, I'd sort of cleared space in my life and I just remember walking home from the first session where they had really instilled upon us the importance of focusing and working hard. And it's like, this is, you know, you Mm -hmm. you can't do anything else for the next few months. It's just this. Mm -hmm. And so I just remember walking home on my own. It was dark and cold and just sort of like, okay, this is it. I'm going to, I'm going to hunker down for the next few months and just focus on this. And then at the other end, after a lot of horrible, difficult, stressful experiences and some failures and some successes and stuff coming out at the other end, the day of the final exam and we finished the exam, all, all the other, uh, tr- you know, uh, candidates, mm-hmm. we'd all kind of got to know each other and made friends with each other and sort of built friendships and relationships and stuff. And we all emerged from the exam and it was like, I think it was the end of May or maybe it was June okay. and it was a hot day and we were in London and we went to the pub and we stayed there <laughs> for the rest of the day. And there's like photographs, you know, of us sort of like sitting around in various states with different, you know, with like uh, pint glasses around and stuff. So, you know, yeah, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a real life experience, like a real life event, Yeah, you know? Yeah, definitely a big deal. So did that, did, did, uh, did you learn a lot then doing the Delta? Did it change you as a teacher? Yeah, it did. But in ways that I think looking back, I find really hard to identify. Like I know that like so much changed, but I did mine slightly differently to yours. I did mine over 18 months. So I did module one, which took about three months and then there's three months off module two, mm. three months on three months off. And then module three, three months on three months off. And, and so I was really slowly internalizing all of this information. It was very easy to kind of synthesize it with the work that I was doing. Cause I was teaching full time. And, and so I couldn't, I think perhaps if I had done it in like a kind of three or four months, I'd be able to say, wow, in December I was teaching like this and in May I'm teaching like this, but it was so long. And and obviously your teaching changes over 18 months anyway. You know, you Mm. sort you grow and you learn new things or or you just get interested in a particular like style of teaching or a particular activity. And then you sort of forget the ones you were using before. Um, So it's really hard to identify and like put my finger on exactly what changed. Um, but it did. It was, it was profound. I think just the, the part in my like identity as a teacher became a lot more solidified. I felt like I knew what I was talking about. I was an expert, um, still, you know, an expert only six years into her career, but nonetheless, I had some sort of foundation for what I was doing. Whereas I think even with the CELTA, there was a sense that I was in a pretend industry doing a pretend job. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know what you mean. So do you have a sort of, uh, what do you like to do as a teacher? What, what what kind of teacher do you want to be or what kind of teacher do you think of yourself as? Mm. Well, I don't think of myself as a teacher anymore. Um, about two years ago, I made the shift to becoming a language coach. Um, I'm in the middle, in the in the middle is entirely wrong. I started two weeks ago. <laughs> I'm at the beginning <laughs> of a certificate in coaching with the University of Cambridge. So, um, okay. So tell me what's the difference then between teaching and coaching? Oh my gosh, you've just given me the title for my assignment this term. So let me tell you in January. <laughs> no, um, I think for me, the, a big difference is that a core tenet of coaching is that it's non-directive. So I'm not, I don't have the information. I don't have the answer for my clients, um, which means that we we can't really focus on on language. I don't want to focus on language, um, and we can't using the techniques that I use. Um, instead, we're focusing a lot more on the emotional side of using another language or living in another language or working in another language. Um, so, with my clients, they're all advanced or above. Um, and they will come to me usually with, I've been to a few teachers, they all tell me they can't help me, or I've done some courses, but it's all just like vocabulary. And I, or I've tried preparing for the proficiency exam, but I passed that exam and I didn't really see a change in my life. I'm still really nervous when I have to speak up in meetings, or I'm still really anxious you know, every time I speak, I'm just so aware that I have an accent and that narrative in my head is really, really loud. And so we work on that uh, side of things rather than how can we get you using them conditional more fluently um, yeah. or whatever. So that's, that's what I do. And it's what I've been doing for the past couple of years. And as I say, the certificate course I'm hoping will give me a couple more tools and also deepen my understanding of, of why it is that the work I do works because I've seen the results, but I'm like, I think it might've been magic. (laughs) I just, we just raised the topic of anxiety and suddenly they felt less anxious. (laughs) So, you know, it's kind of going into that and understanding that a bit more. But that thing that you said there where, where, you know, um, uh, learners uh, or people are coming to you and and saying that I still feel anxious and I still have these uh, sort of intrusive thoughts about Mm. my English and stuff. I'm sure that speaks to many of my listeners actually, I'm sure that many people sort of relate to that quite strongly. Yeah. Um, so what do you, you know, what would you tell one of my listeners then who kind of pricked up their ears when they heard you say that? And like, That's me. What what can we tell our, our learners um, then in that situation? I mean, difficult question, obviously, because I think so much of the work I do is listening. And so it's letting people get to the get to their own answers about what the problem is and, and how to move forward. And so I guess the, que- the question is quite hard to answer without actually going, yeah. okay, let's bring on yeah. a listener. Yeah. <laughs> this and is- here we have, <laughs> just here with me, here's Jean-Pierre. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but I think there are a couple of sort of features or common features that a lot of my clients bring to at least our initial sessions a lot of it is a really really high level of perfectionism that sometimes comes out in other parts of their lives as well you know they will know that about themselves but often seems to be really linked to language and I think it comes from the education system right it comes from 
answers being right or wrong in your homework Mm -hmm. and it comes from you writing this beautiful story for your teacher about you know your day out at the beach and the response being a red pen rather than what a wonderful story you it sounds like you had a really good day I, I really felt you know I could feel the wind in my hair when I was reading it I think mm. that that aspect of our education system just teaches people that English is something to be gotten right or gotten wrong um and in reality, that that doesn't really play much of a role when it comes to building relationships with other people through English or or communicating an idea through English. Yeah, yeah, to a certain extent, getting things right is helpful, but there's so many other things that come into it that I, I believe are more helpful. Yeah. And how do we define what, what makes language uh, right or wrong or an exactly. act of communication right or wrong? It's really, surely, it's it's a question of whether it, it uh, does the thing that it was intended to do. For example, if you tell someone a story and they feel the wind in their hair, mm-hmm. then then the, then it was good. It was it was yeah. right. You know, exactly. um, did they laugh at the bit you wanted to be funny? Great. Well, good. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Even if even if maybe that that verb in that conditional structure wasn't in the past form. You know, uh, even though you were talking about like um, an, 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 a hypothetical thing, um, if everyone sort of understood the story and felt something, yeah, then surely that's considered a success. Mm-hmm. Not that's not to say that we should just completely drop the idea of of accuracy in in grammar, but mm-hmm. you know, we should maybe reevaluate what successful and uh, successful communication really means. It's yeah. not only or first and foremost. Uh, accurate grammar. It's it's uh, it's about the impact and the um, consequence of the thing that you've said or written. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's yeah. interesting what you say about like it's not that we can drop it because I think like in my work we do drop it. I do mm-hmm. not talk about language at all. I. There is like the option, I, I kind of say on my website, like it does include like an optional sort of language feedback sheet and I might be taking notes, but for about 90% of my clients, I make a decision very early on that that would not be beneficial to our work. I guess it depends. It depends, doesn't it, on, on, the, on the person. And you said that most of your clients are at a certain level already. Yeah. Uh, there are, you know, in some cases it might be necessary for people yeah. to work on their accuracy because people are misunderstanding or because their writing or their speaking is a little incoherent because there isn't quite the level of control yeah. needed to be able to, to express the things they, they want to say. Like, for example, for me in French, you know, I don't have that level of grammatical or linguistic control to be able to do, let's say, do stand-up in French. Mm. You know, I, I just don't have the... Uh, the structures are not available to me and I can't manipulate the language and, you know, make make A connect to B to connect to C uh, to get my ideas out. So I need to work on the structure. Uh, I can't just be like given a pep talk and thrown out on stage and be expected to like, you know, get laughs because I don't have the, I don't have the, the, the the grammar and the depth of Mm. vocabulary at my disposal. But someone who, if I, if it was me five years later and I've worked on the grammar, worked on the vocab, and I've definitely got it there. Um, but what I would need, I suppose, is, 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 yeah, the sort of, uh, the, uh, coaching to help me realize, uh, to give me the, the confidence to, um, to actually start doing it, to start using the language and, and not to, 
you know, to let it go, to let the rest of it go. Like yeah. after a certain amount of time, after a certain amount of work, you've put the work and the time in, and then it's a question of like letting it go. It's like Star Wars. You must, you know, you must. What is it? What's Yoda? What does he? What does Yoda say? You don't know. You've I'm never the, watched Star I've Wars. Watched them maybe twenty years ago. <laughs> well, I think Yoda at one point says, "You must unlearn what you have learned." He says in that like, voice. Oh, yeah. mm. For in that voice, exactly. <laughs> wow, very deep. Wow, Star Wars is so deep, isn't it? <laughs> It's not really, but yeah. it sounds like it sometimes. But yeah, you must unlearn what you have learned, yeah. which is. I think the, sta- the stand-up example is is interesting for two reasons. I think one because I mean I don't know what your French is like, so and I I don't speak French enough to be able to judge it. Um, but there is also a point in which you do have to start before you're ready, right? You do yeah. have to start yeah. doing the stand, even if it's like just to a pal in your living room, just to be like, I need to start practicing. I need to start thinking about this rhythm of this performance long before I'm actually ready to go out on stage with yeah. it. So there's, I think with a lot of my clients, it's that idea of getting them ready to start before they're ready. Mm, Feeling like yeah. that's a possibility. Like, yeah, you're going to mess it up. So what? Do what you can do right. and see what happens. And then I think the other side of it is that stand-up is perhaps one of a very, very small number of contexts in which actually your language and the vocabulary choice and the timing and the intonation and the delivery really is core to what you do. And there are potential, like uh, I was speaking to a client recently who's um, head of communication for for a company. And she was like, it's communication. Like I have to be able to communicate. I was like, no, but you're not the copywriter you're not the person who actually puts the words to the ideas. You're the strategist. You're the networker. You're talking to shareholders. Like that, the skills that you need, yeah, of course you need to be able to communicate effectively, but you know, we've been talking for 12 sessions. I know you can do that. I'm not worried about it, but you don't need to be perfect because, but perhaps a copywriter does. That's really interesting though, that that client, it's, 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 I don't know the client, don't know mm-hmm. the situation, but just what you just said is that she said, I work in communication. I have to be able to communicate. That sort of gives you an insight into the kind of shame that mm-hmm. she might feel because she works in the communication industry. Yeah. She feels like there is a certain standard that she has to have in her communication, even though exactly as you say, she's not the copywriter. She's not the one who's writing the advertising copy mm-hmm. or the press release or whatever it is that's being written that, yeah. that is actually, you know, the, the end product of that communications company. But yeah, it's interesting the way that these, these sort of different um, criteria that we judge ourselves by um, uh, can feed into that sense of shame. Like for me, uh, using myself as an example and my French, um, the fact that I'm an English teacher, the fact I'm a language teacher mm. and I've got 20 years of experience of language teaching and I've got these qualifications and I, you know, I have quite a lot of understanding of what it takes to learn a language. And in fact, I'm uh, I'm someone who's always going on about learning a language and helping other people to do it and saying, you know, these are things you could do. And, you know, like a lot, like a, a loads. Um, and so that also feeds into that sense of I'm a language teacher. You know, I, I, I teach people English. Yeah. And I should be able to speak French really well. You know, so it's interesting that those yeah. those things, those are Th- those those things shouldn't be part of my thinking process. Those aren't things that are actually going to help me learn French. Those are just things that sort of help to make me feel bad about my French. They actually prevent me from learning French, weirdly yeah. enough. Yeah. I work a yeah. lot with English language teachers, non-native mm-hmm. English language teachers. 
And that yeah. is the thing. It's like, well, of course, other people don't have to be perfect, but I'm an English teacher. I have to be perfect. There's a, a sort of an extra level of, of like forgiveness towards their students, flexibility towards other learners, other speakers. But as soon as it's applied to them, they're like, no, 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 no. There is a condition to my experience that means I have to be perfect. Um, and yeah, it is. It's a shame that they often bring to their their our conversations our coaching conversations they, they're really ashamed of not knowing all the words or all the idioms or you know occasionally making a grammar mistake and and what sort of to me really cements how important the work I do is and why this aspect of English language learning or language learning generally is so important is that it is not it's this doubt isn't only among for example, the English teachers who do actually still make quite a lot of mistakes. It's also the English teachers or the English learners who are freaking amazing. <laughs> you know, the people who like come out with idioms where I'm like, I'm just going to have to Google that because I've never heard that before. You know, <laughs> there are people who, there are people who I've worked with who speak more advanced and I use, you know, inverted commas there because I, I have a lot of thoughts about what more advanced means, but they use more advanced language more fluently than I do. And I consider myself pretty articulate. Um, and they are still holding on to these, like, I'm not good enough. Oh no, I don't know that language. It, it means everything I do know is somehow invalid. So I, I do think that, I mean, what I do is almost like a like an emergency fix. Like you've been through the education system. These are your scars. Let's try and patch them up. But I think that English language teaching generally and a change I would love to see over the coming kind of decades would be a shift to taking that more into account from the beginning, helping learners understand that, yeah, we're preparing for an exam, for example. And in the exam, this is the criteria that you need to hit, but that isn't real life. You don't need to worry about this stuff outside this is the context of this exam and just helping people understand that a little bit more. I, th I think that would do a world of good in my humble opinion. Yeah. Yeah. The idea that, uh, the English training part, you're doing things and you're, you're, you're trying to push your English to a level, uh, which actually in the real world, you might not need to, to employ, yeah. uh, similar to if you're doing sort of, I don't know, training in the gym, you're trying to get fit and someone's throwing a, a really heavy ball at you. <laughs> And you're trying to catch it, and yeah. and you, it's bumping up, bumping off your 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 the, your body a bit, and you're dealing with your you know de uh, developing your core muscles and stuff because someone keeps throwing a heavy bat, a heavy ball at you, uh, but no one's going to throw a big heavy ball at you. In you know you're not going to finish your gym session, go outside, and then someone like oi and throw a huge heavy ball at you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Uh, similarly, you know you're going to be you, you're having to do these grammar exercises in your English lesson, um, and you're trying to get them all right. But there's no no one's going to go out and test your grammar in the real world. You know you're not. So it's yeah, it's very interesting the the mindset mm -hmm. um, whole idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, very good. And you, you these days you have, uh, you, I mean, you're on Instagram, um, and uh, I mean, you have a podcast, but it's uh, it's on pause or it's. Uh, I think it might be on permanent pause. Really, <laughs> permanent pause. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, so this is my podcast, Deep Talk, and it's. I mean, I think the philosophy isn't a million miles away from the philosophy of this podcast, right? Like, mm -hmm. there. That when you Google English language podcast, obviously you come up first. 
but then oh, you yeah? get to <laughs> you, you do, <laughs> do I? yeah which I, I was uh, researching for a podcast I'm about to I'm in the process of like designing with a with a friend um and I was looking for podcast artwork and just kind of look at like what are the other examples and then I saw you at like the top of all the lists I was like oh god I'm gonna be a guest in a few weeks <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway putting putting this podcast aside most of the podcasts you see are like on grammar or on vocabulary, you know, like a 15 minute lesson or a 15 minute, I don't know, maybe that's not your experience, but that seems to be what comes up in the list when you search like English learning or something. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I was interested in creating something different. Uh, so it was called deep talk and each week I would have a guest, a different guest come on to talk about something which they either had like professional experience of or personal experience of, or had, you know, read significantly about. Um, and it was really interesting. We talked about loads of stuff. I'm really proud of the conversations that, that we had there were 33 episodes before I decided I was trying to get to 35 cause I thought that was a round number and I thought, Oh, what's the point? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Sure. But the episodes are all still there. It's yeah. called deep talk. Uh, mm-hmm. People can go and check them out and Instagram yeah, you just uh, post sort of different uh, thoughts and uh, reflections on, on you know, a lot of the things we've talked about. Yeah. Um, people can check you out. What's uh, How do people find you generally on online to check out some of your work and stuff? Instagram's the big one. So yeah, Rianne on ELT. I've got a new one, Rianne on ELT dot coaching. Um, and that's because my old Instagram was like crickets <laughs> so I was like this is boring let's just get a new one the wait a minute in- crickets you have to explain that oh yeah crickets. crickets if you get crickets on something it's just like silence no response um no engagement and my well, just the sound of crickets in the background yeah. which I wish it was a sound effect I can't do I wish I could do it because <laughs> that kind of yeah the sound of just crickets um as uh, in the on a summer's day crickets are those little insects that are in the grass mm-hmm. and i guess they're rubbing their legs together or yeah. something and they make that noise in the background so crickets essentially means silence yeah, yeah just the exactly. sound of the insects so in the quiet background. that you can hear the crickets right um, right yeah so i was just getting a little bit annoyed with instagram <laughs> i find i really struggle with um the i guess i mean the marketing side of my business at all um but social media was driving me crazy for the past like eight months. So I was like, oh, just start a new one, Rhiannon. I'm still doing the old one, but I'm kind of doing them yeah. both at the same time. Um, but it was just to, I have ADHD and I needed a dopamine hit. <laughs> so I'm, like, I'm just going to start a new Instagram. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Oh, Instagram. I'm, I, I've got an Instagram account, but uh, I've got one post on it from about four years ago. Perfect. And- I just never, ever use it. And so every now and then people write to me. It's like, why aren't you on Instagram? Do Instagram. It's like, <laughs> I did oh, have no, a look just... for you and I couldn't see you. <laughs> yeah. No, it's no. So I need to sort that out. But there just aren't enough hours in the day, oh are there? Oh, my gosh. I mean, no. Yeah. It's it's almost like a full-time job just dealing with Instagram. I mean. It is. Oh, it can oh. be. It can be. And you're up and as a person who is promoting your services, I your services are the job. The services are the bit I get paid for. Mm. You're up against full-time content creators who create content and that's what they do. And I'm like, well, if I'm fighting against them, I'm just going to lose. I can't be bothered. <laughs> I'll, if I've got something to say, I'll say it. But my strategy in the last few months has been that. If I've got something to say, I'll say it. And if I haven't got anything to say, I'll post a picture of my breakfast and then we'll move on. <laughs> uh, but uh, some of my listeners might want to work with you, uh, Rhiannon. So I hope they do. What should they, yeah. What should they do if they, if they want to they should, what, um, go to your website or yeah, my website. So there you will get all the information about um, how to work with me one-to-one, which is if you are an English language learner, 
probably the easiest way to do it. If you're an English language teacher, I do have a group program that'll be starting in January or February. Um, but the one-to-one, you've got a couple of different options and all of that information is on, is on my website. So I'll, I'll send you the link, Luke, and you can, you can share that with, with me. I'll put the link in the description, everybody. Okay, so you'll be able to check it out. All right, cool, brilliant. So uh, Edinburgh then, yeah, back to Edinburgh. Here you are, yeah. you're back in your room in Edinburgh. Is it still grey and overcast? Of course it's it is. ever so slightly brighter, but we're still looking at like bright clouds. We're not looking at blue skies. <laughs> you, want, you know, here I am in Paris, you know, um, and it's exactly the same, just, just, just bright clouds. Yeah. So it's not that different, you know. No. What's the temperature like? Have you guys had the like winter dip? We've been freezing oh. this week. Oh yeah, winter dip, winter dip. We um, the temperature has dipped, and uh, we've had to change coats. Uh, we've had, so we've had a <laughs> change coat duvets change. duvets yet? Not changed duvets yet, no. but there has been a definite coat change. Nice. There has been one mention of heating. Ooh, are you There's... like resilient? Are you like absolutely? We are not turning it on until November or December. Or? Yeah, we try and keep the heating until as late as possible. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, I will see who who crumbles first. I'm sure it's going to be my stronger? wife. Are you stronger? Okay. It's your, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm English, and I've also lived. You know, I'm from the Midlands in okay. England, which is you know a few degrees north of Paris, where my wife is from. Yeah. And so naturally, being a sort of you know. Uh, being a continental person, she is much more sensitive to the temperature, uh, and so uh, she she actually unbelievably she has a hot water bottle in this even on a warm sunny day, which is just unthinkable to me. I That's think she terrible. just likes the she just likes the feeling of it on her back. But um, uh, but yeah, she's definitely going to be this one switching the heating on first. Whereas nice. I'm like, no, we will soldier on. I want, and only when you can see your breath. <laughs> will we switch one heater on um just cups of tea just have more cups of tea that's the solution to everything yeah i mean cups of tea and hot water bottles they will get you far they will get you far we um we are renovating a flat uh, which i think you know because you listened to my uh interview with stenick and for two winters we did not have any heating oh really yeah we had our radiators removed because we were going to be redoing all the floors but we took ages to redo all the floors. Um, and then we took ages to actually find radiators because we've gone for it. You can just see it. Um, like these beautiful black cast iron column radiators, which cost us like almost as much as the house. Um, <laughs> and they are so heavy. We had to pay like specialist movers to get like straps. Four men lifted one radiator up oh the stairs. Gosh. They're so heavy. Um, which just so many considerations that you don't think about, but um, because of that, we had two some two winters without radiators, without any heating at all in Edinburgh. Our flat has double glazing, but that's it. Like everything else, I mean, there's terrible insulation. The the houses here, I know, like lots of people, especially from Europe, complain because our houses don't seem to really be built for the weather in which we live. Like when it's hot, it gets really hot. And when it's cold, it gets really cold um, and there isn't really a way of dealing with it. So so I feel grateful for even having the option of radiators, but we haven't put them on yet. We haven't put them on. How did you survive for two years in Edinburgh, in Scotland? Yeah. Just as a reminder to everyone. Scotland. Scotland, for goodness sake. How did you survive without radiators? So listeners, right, a bit of vocab, radiators. Mm-hmm. I think you've probably worked it out. Some of you know the things that get hot in your home and that heat the home, right? Yeah. Radiators, we call them. And you've got these 
we've new ones they're cast iron big heavy mm, uh, beautiful. sort of beautiful ones and probably very good like effective they're, they're pretty effective hit the, yeah hit the home very well uh, radiators you also mentioned double glazing double glazing is when is is your windows when you have two panes of glass on the windows with a bit of air between the two panes of glass and it insulates mm-hmm. uh, really important for insulating your home against noise but also uh, to keep the heat in uh, to keep the warmth in so all right so how did you actually survive in your edinburgh home for two winters with no central heating no radiators what what did you do uh we were really cold a lot of the time <laughs> it was, i mean hot water bottles cups of tea like five pairs of socks slippers um living your life just like under blankets um we knitted uh, quite a lot i knitted i knitted Knitted. two blankets um just with like wool that i had left over from some project a few years ago um and we did buy we eventually bought like i think it's called like a space heater or something like a little kind of portable plug-in heater but that we only had one so we had to like pick a room (laughs) We're like, we're going to live our, our life in this room today and we'll bring the heater with us. And, you know, like yeah. things like after you've, um, I'm pointing towards my oven over to my right, you know, after you've had the oven on, instead of closing the door, you just leave it open so that that yeah. heat, if it's while the oven's cooling down, it might as well come into the kitchen. Um, yeah, little yeah, things yeah. like that. Yeah, but yeah, it was uncomfortable. Conclusion, uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I used to live in Japan and they've got some pretty... Uh, kind of nice ways of heating. Mm. So in some in some Japanese homes which are a bit more traditional, they wouldn't have central heating. Uh, and instead in the winter you you will have a kind of um like a gas heater or some other kind of fire mm. uh heater in a little hole in the ground in your living room. Mm. So there's a kind of a, a interesting, I don't know how, what it's called, but there's a sort of hole in the ground in the living room and uh, you can sit on the floor and put your legs down into it. Oh, that sounds So it's lovely. kind of, it's it's like wood or carpeted or there's tatami or something inside it. Yeah. And, and, and in there is like a kind of a gas heater. And on top of that gas heater is a table. Okay. And then around the table is a skirt. Yeah. And you sit, on the floor with your legs inside the hole with a skirt over your lap and then it's just like this lovely hot sort of thing that you sit in and you sit around the table and you can eat and sometimes there's like a kind of a bit on the top of the table where there's a cooker as well mm. and so like the cooker the heater the seat the all of it sort of combines to keep you nice and warm and cozy um, how does it feel yes. when you stand up though cold Ooh, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing you just stay inside the nice cozy <laughs> thing you know um and uh yeah okay well all right cool good i'm glad that you got heating thank that's you. good and you can too. keep yourself nice and warm <laughs> uh very nice to talk to you rhiannon and you luke thank you so much for having me yeah 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 uh, nice to get to know you and right have a nice rest of the day yeah and you thank you all right <laughs> so that was nice it was nice to meet Rhiannon, I hope you enjoyed meeting her too. I, as usual, at this point, my thinking is, oh, that must have been a difficult conversation for my listeners to to follow, just because it was all happening at natural speed. But you know, that's kind of the uh, that's the sort of the the method, I suppose, or the philosophy of this podcast is that I do present you with these conversations which have been unfiltered or ungraded uh, for for their level. Uh, Hopefully the little moments when I interjected and 
clarified things or slowed things down, that may have helped you. But anyway, uh, let me know in the comments section as usual, um, you know, how that was for you. But it was nice to meet Rhiannon. And, um, you know, she's... Uh, uh, she's got interesting things to say about uh, uh, English teaching and also just the, the, the mindset stuff, the, uh, the, the, the importance of um, uh, having a positive outlook and recognising perhaps the things that might be limiting you as a uh, speaker of English and um, working through those things in order to boost your confidence. Um, yeah, so Rhiannon ELT dot com Rhiannon ELT dot com is is her website let me just make sure I've got that right R-H-I-A-N-N-O-N-E-L-T dot com Rhiannon ELT dot com all right if you want to uh you know find out more um but that was that was a nice conversation I think in terms of like uh speaking someone for to the speaking to someone for the first time uh, that was good. I think we got on pretty well. I think we hit it off quite well. And uh, it was, you know, I think we have a few things in common, being English teachers and stuff like that. Interesting degree that she did in theology. Um, very interesting stuff. Interesting choice. Um, you know, it's, it's always interesting to meet someone who's chosen to do something a bit more original um, rather than just the usual standard degrees that people do just because it's going to give them a specific career path. Um, yeah, anyway, I'm going to stop now because I need to go and eat lunch, you know, food, you know, sustenance. You know what, of course, you know what food is. Am I going to eat a deep fried Mars bar at this point? I don't know. Do you know what a Mars bar is? I was thinking that during this conversation Something like that, which is so obvious to me and to Rhiannon, a Mars bar. I wonder if um, if you caught that. What is a Mars bar? Many of you will be like, yeah, fine, Mars bar. I know what a Mars bar is. But there's definitely going to be some people going, yeah, I was thinking that too, Luke. What is a Mars bar? Mars bar. What, what are you saying? Mars bar. It's a chocolate bar called Mars. Yeah, named after the planet Mars. You know, our neighbouring our neighboring planet you know, the planets. You've got the sun, not a planet, obviously, it's the sun. Mercury, Venus, Earth, that's this one. Then Mars, right? So Mars, a Mars bar. It's a chocolate bar called Mars. Do you have them in your country? Some chocolate bars are definitely international. Like you just have them everywhere, like Kit Kats. Everyone knows Kit Kats. But are Mars bars international? I don't know. Snickers, that's I think that's pretty international. Twix, I think is known around the world. Mars bar, I'm, I must be known everywhere. Are Mars bars internationally famous? You can let me know. Do you have you ever eaten a Mars bar? Do you have Mars bars in your country? What do you call a Mars bar where you're from? In France, Mars. I think it's something like Mars. I'm probably getting that horribly wrong. Um. So the pronunciation will probably be a little bit different. So how do you say Mars bar in your country? Um, I don't have a Mars bar here to show you, but I think you know. It's a black wrapper, kind of red and gold writing, Mars, inside the Mars bar. It's chocolate. So it's chocolate on the outside. I think it's nougat. Is it nougat or is it truffle? What they call truffle, a kind of sugary, truffly stuff, and um, caramel. Hold on. 
<laughs> Mars bar. I need to check now. Wikipedia. Mars, commonly known as Mars bar, is the name of two varieties of chocolate bar, two, produced by Mars Incorporated. It was first manufactured in 1932 in Slough in England. It's English. Come on. <laughs> um, the bar consists of caramel and nougat coated with milk chocolate. So it is nougat. An American version of the Mars bar was produced, which had nougat and toasted almonds. Nuts, almonds, not almonds, almonds, covered in milk chocolate. Later, caramel was added to the recipe as well. The, the American version was discontinued in 2002 and then revives, revived in a slightly different form the following year under the name of Snickers Almond. Anyway... Never mind that American version. The Mars bar, the original English one, you know it, right? Black wrapper, red writing with gold around the edge. Mars. Okay, everyone's like, yes, we know what a flipping Mars bar is, Luke. Anyway, a deep fried Mars bar is, yeah, where someone in Scotland takes a Mars bar and throws it into the deep fat fryer and it fries like fish and like you do with your fish and chips. And then they f you fish it out and you cut it open. And inside, of course, the chocolate's all melted and stuff. Uh, actually, the Mars bar gets, it gets put in the batter first. You roll the Mars bar in batter first, like with fish and chips, like I described earlier. And then that gets put into the oil. And I guess the batter does provide a certain amount of insulation. There's that word insulation again. It, the batter does provide a certain amount of insulation against the... Um, against the boiling hot oil so that the Mars bar on the inside does melt, but it doesn't completely, you know, it doesn't melt too much so that it's still fairly sort of edible. There's still some consistency to it when it's fished out and cut open. The chocolate is melting. The nougat, the caramel is melting on the inside, but it's still got some structure to it so you can still enjoy eating it. Yeah, so that's a deep fried Mars bar. A kind of Scottish speciality, uh, you could say. All right, there you go. That's the end of this. So as I was saying, I need to stop now because I need to go and eat. Not a deep fried Mars bar, uh, but just normal food. Um, okay, all right. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Uh, I will speak to you soon, okay? But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.